Yet, and John had explained it to all of us and had our confederated sympathy and understanding, a unified and impregnable front to the world and even to Father himself, if that unimaginable crisis had ever arisen, which it would not have except for Boone Hagenbach, telling us, John, how he had earned the price of the pistol by doing outside work on his own time, on time apart from helping his father on the farm, time which was his own to spend eating or sleeping, until on his twenty-first birthday he had paid the final coin into his father's hand and received the pistol, telling us how the pistol was the living symbol of his manhood, the ineffaceable proof that he was now twenty-one and a man, that he never intended to, declined even to imagine the circumstance in which he would ever pull its trigger against a human being, yet he must have it with him. He would no more have left the pistol at home when he came away than he would have left his manhood in a distant closet or drawer when he came to work. He told us, and we believed him, that if the moment ever came when he would have to choose between leaving the pistol at home or not coming to work himself, there would have been but one possible choice for him. So at first his wife had stitched a neat strong pocket exactly fitting the pistol on the inside of the bib of his overalls. But John himself realized at once that this wouldn't do. Not that the pistol might fall out at some irretrievable moment, but that the shape of it was obvious through the cloth. It couldn't have been anything else but a pistol. Obvious not to us. We all knew it was there, for Mr. Ballot, the white stable foreman, and Boone, his assistant, whose duty was night duty, and so he should have been at home in bed at this moment, on down through all the negro drivers and hostlers, down to the last lowly stall cleaner, and even to me, who only collected the Saturday accumulation of freight bills and answered the telephone. On even to old Dan Grinnup, a dirty man with a tobacco-stained beard who was never quite completely drunk, who had no official position in the stable, partly because of the whiskey, but mostly because of his name, which was not Grinnup at all, but Grenier, one of the oldest names in the county until the family went to seed. The Huguenot, Louis Grenier, who crossed the mountains from Virginia and Carolina after the Revolution and came down into Mississippi in the 1790s and established Jefferson and named it, who, old Dan, lived nowhere and had no family save an idiot nephew or cousin or something still living in a tent in the river jungle beyond Frenchman's Bend, which had once been a part of the Grenier plantation, until he, old Dan, would appear, never too drunk to drive it, at the stable in time to take the hack to the depot and meet the 9.30 p.m. and the 4.12 a.m. trains and deliver the drummers to the hotel or on duty all night sometimes when there were balls or minstrel or drama shows at the opera house. 
At times, at some cold and scornful pitch of drink, he would say that once Grenier's led Yachnipatafa society. Now, Grinnips drove it. Holding his job, some said, because Mr. Ballot's first wife had been his daughter. Though we in the stable all believed it was because when father was a boy he used to fox hunt with old Dan's father out at Frenchman's Bend. <laughs>